Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. So today I want to discuss the recent move in the long end of the treasury curve, uh, basically 10-year treasuries out to 30-year treasuries, which for anyone who's followed it post-Fed meeting, which was less than a month ago, the 10-year bond for a nanosecond ticked up to about a 170 yield, and yesterday it touched uh, 125, 126, currently, you know, as we speak, hovering a little over 130. So, you know, 170 to 130, a pretty big move in a short amount of time. So the questions are naturally, what does this mean? And then a kind of corollary or follow-up, how does this happen? So it's my contention that it means almost nothing, that one really can't derive any conclusions about the economy, financial markets, even the conditions of the banking system six months hence. So to support this you know, kind of thesis, you know, first, I want to suggest that the other two sort of things that one has heard are simply not plausible and not consistent with other known facts. So when the Fed made their announcement, the immediate reaction was for yields to tick up, which lasted for, I'm trying to recall and I'm not certain, but my recollection is less than an hour certainly less than a full day. So then, what did the Fed do? What did the Fed say? The Fed didn't do anything, absolutely no policy change. The one thing the Fed said is that inflation has been hotter than they expected, that they didn't highlight, but actually in May of 2020, their prediction for inflation over the next 12 months was 1.7%, and it came in at 5 on the CPI, so more than hot. And their concern in May of 2020 was that the pandemic had and was exerting tremendous deflationary pressure, and that this pressure could last for years, even after the pandemic had passed. So they were not making a prediction that the pandemic would last for years, but they were concerned that the after effects and deflation could persist well beyond the end of the pandemic. So what the Fed did was softly and without prominence, you know, admit that they were, you know, completely wrong a year earlier and, you know, added that they're watching data. Also, don't they always watch data? And what they believe that inflation is transitory, but if evidence continues to contradict that belief or assumption, they will act now. So then market prices on 10-year bonds rallying, yields falling. The you know sort of first explanation is you know that before the Fed meeting, markets, market participants were concerned that the Fed was asleep, the Fed was uh, buried in a, a bunker somewhere. The Fed you know, didn't know that, in fact, a very broad range of prices were rising and that inflation was hot. And 
now that they dispelled that, the market fears can be assuaged. Now, to me, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, first of all, everybody believes that the Fed always watches data, and everybody believes at least to a degree um, the Fed responds to data, the Fed thinks about data, and that the Fed is in fact capable of adjusting, even reversing policy. So nothing new. And also, you know, I think all market participants believe that there are no hawks on the open market committee, no aggressive rate raisers on the open market committee. And, you know, moreover that, you know, there just isn't a Paul Volcker anywhere in the building. So people believe that the Fed will bend over backwards to be accommodative. It, it will err on the side of easing and being too easy consistently versus being too tight. So that was the belief before the Fed meeting, and it was the belief after the Fed meeting. The meeting really could not have changed anybody's fundamental view of what the disposition of the Fed is and what the direction and the fundamental tendencies of their policy. So that was the first story. As the move has accelerated and continued over the last couple of weeks, the next narrative is that the bond market sees trouble for the economy and that may be related to the spread of variants and COVID restrictions coming back in certain communities, even certain countries, and that, you know, that this move means that the bond market sees trouble for the economy. I reject this narrative too, and would adduce as evidence that it is in fact no other markets, no other, you know, kind of data, no other sampling of opinion agrees with this. So it's not just that equities are at or flirting with all-time highs. The high-yield bond market, which tends to be something of an economic forecaster, though, as I commented in another podcast, uh, markets mean much less in terms of predictions of the future economy than than they did before the financial crisis. But the high-yield bond market is not saying their economic issues. The stock market is not saying that their economic issues. Purchasing managers surveyed, business confidence, all of these data don't support the idea of concern for the economy. And I'm very much in the camp that the most likely economic scenario is overheating, is an inflationary boom, reported you know, GDP surprising on the upside. So if it doesn't mean anything, and it's not an economic predictor, how does it happen? How and why? And here, I want to offer two propositions, both of which I can express with a high degree of confidence. I would say um, beyond a reasonable doubt, but you know, less than metaphysical certainty. 
So, and those two propositions are the banking system has more deposits than they anticipated. And perhaps some action of unknown, but some action of the Fed or uh, foreign central banks juiced deposits a little bit on the margin. But the banking system um, has more deposits than they anticipated you know, three months ago, six months ago, nine months ago. We see this directly at our banks in terms of deposit flow, in terms of the amount of PPP money that's remained, and even some unsolicited comments from clients and guidance on their likely future balances. So I think in a technical way, the surfeit of bank deposits has gotten confirmation by large volumes of the Fed uh, reverse repo facility, effectively the amount of deposits uh, the banking system is holding at the Fed has ticked up. So that's proposition one. The second proposition is that systemically the banking system and the more price sensitive shorter term parts of the financial system are systemically effectively borrowing long and lending short. This is the reverse of the system that prevailed for my young adult life, which was, you know, quite a while ago. But banking crises used to result in the, you know, sort of fundamental instability in the financial system. And, you know, in fact, what the financial system was for was that banks borrowed short and lent long. They took um, short-term transactional balances and used that to finance long-term investments. That was, you know, the very purpose of a financial system was, in fact, to extend the use of financial assets, the duration of financial assets. The reverse is now the case, and it's driven in part because of the non-loan nature of the liabilities of pension plans and insurance companies. So when an insurance company sells you a life insurance policy, they take in money and they make a promise to pay it in the future. But that promise is not a loan and it doesn't create new money in the banking system the way a business taking out a loan from a bank does. Pension plans, similarly, a pension is a promise to pay outside of the banking system. So for the last probably 20 years, insurance companies and banks have effectively, via through the swap market, have bought long-term bonds. And the counterparty is the banking system and other parts of the shadow banking system, hedge funds, etc. So hedge funds, the Goldman Sachs of the world, the JP Morgans of the world, are systemically sort of borrowing long to accommodate the needs of pension plans and insurance companies. Also the case that as rates move up or down, any imbalance between 
the assets and liabilities of banks and uh, shadow banks, hedge funds, etc., tends to get worse, which is to say if the banks have assets that are shorter duration than their liability, as rates move, that mismatch gets worse. To give you a, a sort of simple example as to how this works, and I do hope it is simple, imagine Goldman Sachs on their balance sheet has 10-year non-callable bonds. So Goldman Sachs on their balance sheet has borrowed money for 10 years at a fixed rate that they do not have the option to pay back. If on the asset side they lent money to a business for 10 years at a fixed rate, but the business has the option of prepaying, maybe with a penalty, but maybe with no penalty or with a penalty that is less than the effective move in rates. Though Goldman has nominally taken on a 10-year asset funded with a a 10-year liability, their liability is fixed at 10 years in their asset. And uh, as rates go down, the effective length of that 10-year liability goes up. So to give an extreme example, the effective length of a 10-year bond at 15% is you know, four or five, something like five years. At zero, it's 10 years. That number is called duration. So you know, as rates go up, that duration shortens. As rates go down, that duration lengthens. The opposite is true for the corresponding asset. As rates go down, the likelihood of them prepaying early goes up, the effective duration of the asset shortens. So moves in rates almost always increase the asset liability mismatch within the financial system, which means that there are positive feedback loops that exacerbate any kind of random fluctuation in rates if, in fact, it kicks in asset liability management within the banking system. So systemically, the banking system has to buy bonds as yields go down, prices go up, and has to sell them as yields go up, prices go down, if they want to maintain a constant balance between their assets and liabilities. Now, coupled with this, if there are market players who notice this behavior and therefore want to be ahead of it, one gets momentum traders piling on the action of the banks. And so one can get clearly random, noisy, meaningless move of three, four, or five bips can be accelerated into what looks like a economically significant a information-containing move of 20 or 30 bips, or maybe more, but in my view, that's just not so. It's the mechanics of the market which are limited by, call it the real world. At some point, prices induce supply and demand, and the technical adjustments of the banking system are met 
by economic reality. The same sort of phenomenon happens in equity markets. The people, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, maybe served as market makers, you know, are actually in response to minor movements, not um, liquidity providers, but liquidity demanders, and they have to move prices enough to attract supply and demand from sort of fundamental long-term players. So to me, the implications from an investing slash trading point of view is first, you know, one has to respect the magnitude of moves that can happen for no reason and therefore hopefully not be in a position that a move that occurs for for no reason, you know, actually has to dictate selling or, you know, or other kind of action. But within limits and uh, within care, one should actually try to exploit the noise. I think in a fundamental way, post-financial crisis, the previously prevailing signal-to-noise ratio, which had more signal and less noise, is now materially changed. There is much less signal and there is much more noise, and the noise is of a magnitude that uh, one can exploit, but one also has to be cognizant of and from a uh, risk management volatility tolerance perspective. So the final takeaway is the move from uh, 170 to to 130 on the 10-year is noise. I think we will shortly retrace a significant portion of that. One should not read the action in the Treasury market as a portent for economic difficulty. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.